And I would invite you this morning to turn once again to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, uh, we'll read uh, verse 2 this morning. Or it'll be on verse 2, but we'll read verses 1 through 4. Uh, so far, our mini-series on prayer is centered around the idea of being wells that are constantly full of the living waters of Jesus so that we can live the Christian life in such a way that we don't become a spiritually, emotionally, uh, mentally, even physically dry and worn out. And we do that, as we've been talking about, by drilling the wells of our hearts deeply into Christ, by slowing down and spending time with Jesus in prayer. And remember, that's the, the meaning of the Martha and Mary story which we looked at recently. We need to invite Jesus into our daily calendars the way that Mary invite, Martha invited him into her home. And then like Mary, uh, we need to put aside our work and service for Jesus so that we can sit at the feet of Jesus and be served by him and filled uh, by his presence. <clears throat> but we've also seen that not only do we need to learn to take time to pray, but as we saw last Sunday, we also need to learn how to pray. Last Sunday, we talked about how as the disciples were reflecting on Jesus' conversation with Martha and Mary, and also on Jesus' own life of prayer, uh, they realized, like maybe we are realizing, uh, they just didn't know how to do this very well. Uh, they didn't know how to slow down and pray. And then on top of it, they didn't really know what kinds of things they should pray about when they actually did slow down to pray. And so they asked Jesus, like we are asking Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And then Jesus responds with what we now call the Lord's Prayer, at least one of the versions of the Lord's Prayer that our Lord gave his disciples throughout his ministry. And then we looked at the first line of that prayer last Sunday, Father, hallowed be thy name or hallowed be your name. And we saw this teaches us to pray for holy relationships as God's children. We're asking God to teach us to uh, listen and speak and forgive and love and serve like our elder brother Jesus does. That was all last week. Um, if you're interested, you can find those sermons uh, through our website if you want to listen to those again uh, or for the first time. This week, we're moving on now to the second line in the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come. Uh, I found it helpful over the years to think about this prayer, this line, I should say, in three related ways. Uh, we're to pray for God's kingdom people, for his kingdom purpose, and for his kingdom presence. Kingdom people, purpose, and presence. Those are the, the, the main points I want to talk about this morning. But I have one more point of introduction before we read our passage and uh, jump into those points. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is something we need to seek. Right? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. We usually hear this command to seek God's kingdom as the, the need to put uh, his kingdom first in our lives, to live first for his kingdom. And while Jesus is obviously calling us to put our money, time, and energy first into kingdom activities, I don't know that we've really ever grappled with the fact that Jesus tells us to seek first 
the kingdom, as in to look for it, to, to search for it. He doesn't tell us to work first for the kingdom. He doesn't tell us to labor first for the kingdom. He tells us to seek first the kingdom of God, which implies that the people and the presence and the purpose of God that we are striving for and working toward and that we are dedicating our money, time, and energy and lives to is not always something that's obvious. And as I was thinking about that, I ran across this powerful word from Jesus to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 17. And there Jesus is replying to a question from the Pharisees about when the kingdom of God would be coming. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then Jesus says in, in chapter 17, he says this in verse 20. I'm going to read it for you. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, meaning seen with your physical eyes. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's right in front of you. I know this introduction is getting long, so I'll get to the point. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, uh, the people that God is seeking and saving, the, the purpose that God has for us in his work, the presence of God's heavenly culture among us is something that is around us. It's near us. It's in our midst. It's in our presence. But it's not something that you discern with your eyeballs. It's something you discern through prayer. It is spiritually discerned, not physically discerned, which is why I think in the very next section in Luke chapter 17, right after Jesus talks about this, and he actually has to make the same point in our, later on in our passage this morning, Jesus will talk about the need for persistent prayer, praying to God over and over and over and over again. That's next Sunday's sermon. All this, that to say this then, Praying for God's kingdom to come is not simply a matter of asking God to put first things first in our lives. It's slowing down and asking God to show us his presence in our lives and in the lives of those around us so that we can respond well to what he is already doing. Uh, to return to our well analogy, maybe this morning you're coming here feeling dry because you don't know what Jesus is doing in your life. You don't know where he is, <coughs> excuse me, and you don't know what his goal is. Or maybe you're feeling empty because you're unsure about where Jesus is in the lives of your friends and family. You're not able to discern his presence or his purpose in the lives of the people around you. And so you find it draining to speak and act and have faith that Jesus is there in any sense or to even know what to do because you just don't understand what Jesus is doing. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe this morning you're feeling stretched thin by worry and confusion because you simply don't know what God is doing in the world. If that's the case, and I know for a fact that it's the case for you guys in this room. Uh, if you're struggling to see the presence of God and the work of God in your life and others' lives and the, the life of the world around you, then 
then I invite you to reflect with me this morning as we dig very briefly into this line in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. Because it's all about asking God to help us discern his presence and his work and his purpose in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones and in the life of the world. That's enough introduction. Uh, let's read Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 for context, and then we'll talk about praying for God's kingdom people, kingdom purpose, and kingdom presence. <coughs> Excuse me. Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. Let's hear God's word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Grass withers, flowers fade. The word of, the God, word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, we thank you for your word, which we know uh, reveals you and reveals to us how we can live with you and follow you and know you more. Father, we desire very much uh, to learn how to pray your kingdom come, but we know that unless your spirit blesses your word in our life, that uh, it will not bear fruit. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us now ears to hear your word, minds to understand your word, hearts to believe your word. Uh, Father, may the words in my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word this morning. May it all now be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, our first point this morning is short, uh, but it's important. I've, I've called it Kingdom People because I think alliterations can be fun sometimes. Uh, but a better title would be Believing That God is Making and Maturing Christians. Uh, so since Jesus doesn't define what exactly he wants his disciples to pray for when he tells us to pray, your kingdom come, that means he's assuming that we're bringing some prior knowledge to this instruction. If you were to go back in Luke's gospel, you would see that Jesus' preaching is defined as preaching the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus says that he must preach the good news of the kingdom to all the communities around him. And the good news of the kingdom is the healing and the hospitality and the forgiveness and the reconciliation of God, the, the salvation of sinners given to us through Jesus, right, the Messiah, the, the Savior of God's people. I think that's familiar enough, familiar enough to most of us. But then, then think about what Jesus goes on to do as he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the surrounding communities. He goes on to preach to zealots, who, as we talked about a month or so ago, were basically terrorists who used violence and intimidation to oppose the Roman Empire and anyone who worked with them. And you may remember that uh, one of Jesus' own apostles, Simon, had at one time been a zealot. 
And then Jesus calls us his disciples tax collectors like Matthew, people who would have been threatened and intimidated and in danger from people like Simon. And then Jesus preaches to Roman soldiers and to the beggars that they were known to exploit and abuse. He preached to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and to the apostates and the non-believers. He preaches to men and to women, and very surprisingly to everyone in his day, slaves, and just below them in the social hierarchy, children. He preaches to massive crowds, like he did when he preached to the 5,000. And he takes the time to preach to individuals, like when he spoke to the woman at the well. Uh, Jesus calls all of these people into a relationship with himself through repentance and faith. And now I'm reminding us of all of that so I can make this point. When Jesus looks at people, he believed and he acted on the belief that enemies could be made friends through him. That the violence could be made peaceful. He saw that sinners uh, could not only be forgiven by God, but forgiven by the people that they have sinned against and brought into a relationship of friendship the way he did with Matthew and Simon. He saw the possibility of a community where women and men and children could be brought in not as adversaries and rivals, the way that boomers and millennials are adversaries and rivals today, uh, not as superiors and inferiors, but as brothers and sisters brought together into the family of God. Because Jesus understood that the kingdom of God is the good news that God is living and active in the world, saving sinners through the work of the Messiah, who is Jesus. And therefore, Jesus could go to people who on earthly terms could never, ever be reconciled or who could never, ever live together. And he speaks to them and he treats them as those who can indeed live together as the reconciled family of God, as friends with Jesus. Now take that concept and think about what Jesus is teaching the disciples and he's teaching us in this prayer. Beloved, how often do we look at people and think there is no way they could be saved? There's no way that they're going to repent of that behavior. There's no way that they can be forgiven, or maybe that I can be forgiven. There's no way that these groups could ever be united in Jesus. There's no way that Republicans and Democrats can worship in the same church in Jesus' name, or Ukrainians and Russians, because the hurt's too big, the gap is too great. This is something that is impossible. My friends, that way of thinking leads us to disobedience and it leads us to tragedy. It leads to disobedience because when we think that way, don't we deny the hope of the gospel to the very people who need it? When we decide that the unbeliever can't be saved, don't we deny them the invitation to forgiveness and a new life in Jesus' name because we think, well, there's just 
No, it's just not going to happen. They're not going to say yes. In a similar way, when we decide that our fellow Christians can can never really mature or, or grow up in Christ, don't we deny them the invitation to repent more deeply and grow more fully into a relationship with, with Christ? I mean, even as a pastor, I, I admit there's been plenty of times in my own ministry where I've looked at uh, someone or a group of people and thought, there is no hope for them. And that disobedience leads to tragedy because when we do this, when we think that way and act that way, what we are teaching people and what we are teaching ourselves is that God and his Holy Spirit is nowhere to be found in this situation. So instead of God's kingdom being in our midst, near us and present, as Jesus teaches us over and over and over again in the Gospels, we act like God is everywhere but here. He's everywhere but there. He's with them but he's not near you. We're saying God isn't here to help us. Beloved, this isn't how Jesus wants us to view people, situations, each other. He doesn't want us to view each other as hopeless or our divisions as unsolvable. He wants us to see that he, through his spirit, is living and active in the world, that he is saving sinners now. He's reconciling enemies now. He's making a family that is united and whole and living in friendship with him him now. He is maturing Christians now. And so he teaches us to pray that his kingdom of redemption and mercy would come into the life of my neighbor and into the life of my children and the life of my spouse and the life of my friends and the life of my brothers and sisters and the life of my coworkers and the life of my town and into the life of the world. Lord, your kingdom come because you are here. You are not an absentee landlord. You are the God who is living and active present in the world, working out your kingdom purposes. And there is no person and there is no group that you cannot reconcile to yourself. Lord, your kingdom come. My friends, whenever we find ourselves thinking that someone is beyond the ability of Jesus to save or some Christian is beyond the ability to be matured, Jesus doesn't call us to throw up our hands in disgust, but just fall on our knees and say, Lord, your kingdom come. That leads us to our second point, kingdom purpose. So Jesus wants us to learn through prayer that people can be saved and problems can be solved because Jesus is in the world through his Holy Spirit bringing redemption, bringing maturity. He's living and active. But that said, the way that we are called to join in with God's redemptive project, the, the way that we pursue God's kingdom's kingdom purpose isn't so obvious to us, is it? Uh, God always knows exactly what he's doing. We don't always know exactly what God is doing. And, uh, and that then leads me to the second thing I think we're supposed to pray for when we pray, your kingdom come, which is we're asking Jesus to help us know how to join in 
to his ministry, to join with him, partner with him, as Paul says in, in Philippians, as he is bringing his kingdom to fruition and expression in the world. Again, if you look at Jesus' ministry, the way that he pursues repentance and growth isn't cookie cutter. Uh, sometimes he calls for repentance with exceptionally great kindness and compassion. And again, you can think of the woman at the well who is incredibly gentle with. But sometimes he calls for repentance with great strength and even condemnation. You can think of him telling the Pharisees that they're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, right? That was, maybe today if he tweeted it, there'd be some like heart emojis or something to soften it. I don't know. Um, Sometimes Jesus spends most of his time listening and very little talking. Like it seems like he does when he attends a lot of parties, but certainly it's what he did when he was going to the cross and like a sheep before his shears is silent. He spoke very little and God used his silence as a means to draw the Roman soldier to confess faith at the end of Jesus's crucifixion. But other times... Jesus does a lot of talking, right? He's a preacher. He's going throughout the, the gospel. He's, he's giving long, extended uh, sermons and storytelling. Sometimes Jesus waits for people to come to him for help. That happens a lot in the gospels, doesn't it? He's walking down the road and someone runs up to Jesus and asks for his help. But other times, Jesus seeks them out and goes to them before they can ask. Like Zacchaeus, when Jesus invited himself over to his house for dinner. And then there are those, as we kind of think of Zacchaeus, that Jesus changes in a moment. Growth like that. Again, like Zacchaeus, when after dinner, he repents and gives away everything, returns everything he stole and gave away half his wealth as a, as a sign of repentance. And then there are those, though, that Jesus changes over a long period of time, like Nicodemus in John's gospel, who needed three years before he finally owned Jesus as his savior. Or in terms of maturing Christians, remember it took Simon 20 to 30 years to finally be matured enough in Jesus that people no longer called him the zealot. You can go through all these examples and see that the way that Jesus pursues bringing the kingdom of God into people's lives is just not the same for everyone. Now, obviously, the content is the same, right? We all have the same sins. We all need to be forgiven by the same triune God through the same Savior, Jesus. We all need to have the same faith in Jesus. We need to have the same repentance. We need to have of maturity and wisdom. We need the same baptism, right? The same Lord's Supper. Like that's, that's all the same. There's a lot of things that are the same. But the way that those things come into our lives and the timeline that they arrive in is not the same. Just like in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to speak, a time to listen, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to mourn, a time to rejoice. Uh, like we talked about a few weeks ago, there are just different seasons in our life with God. God works at a different pace and in different ways in people's lives. And so part of praying for God's kingdom to come into our lives is praying 
for God to help us understand what season of life this person is in and what our role in that season should be. <clears throat> it's okay to pray like, what is God's purpose? God, what is your purpose for me in their, in their life? Is it my job right now to listen or to speak or to call for repentance or to forgive? Is it my purpose to be simply someone who prays for them, Lord, and trusts in your work in their life? Or is my purpose to come alongside of them and shoulder their burdens for a season? Lord, what do you want me to do? What is my role in this season in their life? Because again, not only do we struggle to believe that God is present in this situation in some way, we also struggle to know what God's purpose for us is in this situation right now. And when we, whenever we have that struggle, uh, we tend to have, I think generally speaking, two different kinds of responses to that struggle. One response is simply to react based on our feelings and then hope for the best. Uh, there are times when that's all you can do, of course, but there's also plenty of times where we spend hours or days worrying and wondering and fretting about what to do, and then all of a sudden we just decide to do something because maybe just Doing something will break my cycle of worry. Or we just throw up our hands and we go, it's beyond us. And we refuse to do anything, even pray about it, because it's just too hard. I don't want to think about it. Now, of course, both of these get covered by us with pious language. Right? We'll say when we throw up our hands and walk away, we're just giving it to God. But my, let me say this, my friends. If you didn't pray about it, you can't say you gave it up to God. Or we'll say correctly, God can use our worst actions to do good things, and praise God, that's true. But we are called to try and do our best actions as we can as we're guided by the Bible and by faith in Christ, and just closing our eyes and acting blindly as a way to try and escape a negative pattern that we've thought ourselves into is not actually acting in faith, seeking the kingdom of God. Know what God is calling us to do here, and, and I'm going to get practical again, is to pray that we would see what Jesus wants us to do with him as he brings in his kingdom. So, Father, your kingdom come. Father, help me to believe that you are, in fact, living and active in this situation, that you are near in your Holy Spirit and through your gospel to this person and Lord, help me to see your presence so that I don't despair for them, but can hope and believe that you are there and you are working and you are building your kingdom in your own time and in your own way. And then not just that, Lord, what would you have me do to bless them in the name of Jesus, given the situation they're in? Would you have me uh, invite them over to my house? Should I invite myself over to their house? Should I... Simply stay home and, and pray. And But Lord, if you do have it so that we're supposed to get together, do I listen or do I speak? Father, help me discern what you want me to do in their life, in your name. Should I, should I simply commit myself to praying for them every day and waiting on you to bring gospel blessing 
into their life. These are the kinds of things Jesus is calling us to wrestle with in prayer. And then if we find ourselves still at a loss to coming with other believers and sitting down with them and praying with them, seeking God's face together in prayer and in the scripture as we try to discern what Jesus has for us. So that's God's purpose. Finally, God's kingdom presence. And you're probably all thinking, you should have preached one sermon on each point. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, I'm in a hurry for some reason. Uh, but anyway, we're going to do this. Kingdom presence. So time is, uh, time is almost completely out. Uh, so final point, kingdom presence. And here's what I mean by kingdom presence. God's kingdom is more than bringing people together. God's kingdom is more than us joining him in his mission to bring the gospel of Jesus into the lives of those around us. God's kingdom is also, and I think fundamentally, about experiencing life with God together. <clears throat> and there's a, a parable Jesus uses to describe the kingdom that has always uh, encouraged me greatly and challenged me deeply. It's in Matthew's gospel, it's in Mark's gospel, I don't remember exactly where, but in Luke's gospel, it's in chapter 13. And there Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which though it's the smallest of seeds, grows into this huge bush, and that in that bush, the birds of the air make their homes. And Jesus' point is that while the kingdom of God is hard to see at first, you know, you can't see it very well with your physical eyesight, that you can see it with the eyes of prayer. But though it's small at first, it grows. And when it grows, it makes a safe home for people. The kingdom of God is what we're looking for when we want to be safe and find rest and be nourished by the word and the spirit of God. Just like when the birds come to the mustard seed, they find a community in the flock together, food for all of them, security from their enemies, welcome and safety in a harsh and difficult world. See, to Jesus, the kingdom of God is fundamentally a place of hospitality and safety. It's a place of forgiveness and reconciliation. It is the place where the experience of God's redemption and the pursuit of his purpose in building the kingdom is experienced by everyone. Members and visitors, the oldest to the youngest. It's where heaven's home is experienced in this life. And then, which is why Jesus goes on to tell us that the church is the kingdom of God given physical expression on earth. And so my friends, what that means for us is God's kingdom of safety and hospitality and spiritual nourishment, forgiveness and new life and reconciliation of salvation is something that we ought to pray would be so much a part of our culture, our corporate life, the way we live together, that everyone would experience a taste of our heavenly home when they interact with us on Sunday. 
and during the week. To connect it to our last point, uh, it's about, dis- about discerning what Jesus wants. Part of what we're asking Jesus for when we pray your kingdom come is to show us what we need to do together in order to express the kingdom of God as well as we're able. <coughs> or to put it another way, we don't just pray that God's kingdom would come in their life, but in my life and in our life so that the culture of our church and the culture of our families and the culture of our individual lives would be a gospel-shaped shelter for the people that are around us. Uh, I'm going to conclude with this thought. Uh, Remember that this prayer is Jesus' answer to the disciples to slow down and rest with Jesus so that they can be uh, filled with his life, so that they can give that life to others without themselves being emptied. By praying for God's kingdom to come, we are being filled with his confidence that Jesus is in fact living and working in the world. We're being filled with the life-giving hope that this person is living in the presence of Jesus and that this situation is happening in the presence of Jesus and therefore there is hope for all of us. Jesus is not unaware of what's going on. He's not absent from the situation. He's not aloof from this person. He is there because his spirit is present everywhere. And then as we pray, we're set free from the danger of unconsidered actions or frustrated abandonment. Instead, we're blessed with the opportunity to sit and ask Jesus to help us know if and how to act. And we're blessed with the peace that comes from having asked Jesus to draw us into his own work and to give us discernment. God always responds to that prayer with peace that he is there with us. And then, of course, as we pray your kingdom come, we're also blessed to thank God for drawing us into his project of making us a safe and hospitable gospel home, a taste of heaven here on earth. And then we get to ask him how we can become more and more heaven-like as a church so that the peace of Christ would be experienced by more and more people. I hope that as we go through our week, that this will be our prayer. Uh, Father, your kingdom come in their life and in my life and in our life. Help me to see you. Help me to believe you're, you're here with us. Help us to look like you, to act in ways that are appropriate to what you're doing. Help us to know and believe that you are building your kingdom and that we, I, am a part of that redemptive work. Amen? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, please give us the uh, confidence that your kingdom is near and that uh, therefore everyone can be saved and reconciled through repentance and faith in Jesus. And please help us to discern the ways that you want us to join with you as you bring your people into the fullness of the kingdom. Uh, Give us wisdom, give us courage, give us patience. And Father, also please give us a kingdom culture here at Grace. Uh, Help us to be a place where people taste and see your goodness and find rest in fellowship with you through the gospel of Christ. Uh, Because Lord, we want your kingdom to come in our lives 
and in the life of our church and in the life of our family and friends and neighbors. We want to see and experience your redemptive, reconciling, transforming, maturing work. And we ask that you would bless us uh, as you, and that as we pray, your kingdom come. Amen.